Today's reading is from Daniel 1, 1 to 5. I'll be reading from the New International Version. In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Azapaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Well, um, some of you remember a couple of years ago me talking about The Matrix. And I don't know if it inspired any of you to go watch it, and maybe you thought to yourself if you did, well, I don't know what that guy saw in that movie. That was terrible. And maybe you saw what I saw in it and liked it or something. But there's this one little frame in there that I'm going to reference for those of you who have seen it, and for those of you who haven't, I think you'll still get the point. A character named Neo is moving into a new reality. He has taken a pill which enables him to see things the way they really are. Now, wouldn't that be interesting if we could see things the way they really are spiritually? Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, when he took the pill, what he realized was that he had been living in a program, and this program basically fed his brain a series of activities and events But in reality, he was in a pod, plugged in in all sorts of ways that kept him alive, but he was producing heat and energy and really a battery for a machine. There's all sorts of metaphors there we could go into. But as he's discovering the new reality he's a part of, he looks at himself in the mirror and he's, he sh- in reality, he's shaved and he has all these uh, marks and scars and sores where he was plugged in. But none of that appears when he looks in the mirror. All he sees is a normal-looking guy. And it's called a residual self-image in the film. Well, I have a residual self-image. You know, It doesn't work when I look in the mirror, but my image of myself is of a skinny guy. Okay? Thank you. Really? I mean, I think of myself as, um, you know, agile and, and uh, you know, all those sorts of things. Just not, certainly not heavy. No. I hate the mirror because it, it, it begins to tell me a few facts that contradict my residual self-image. But in my own mind's eye, when I look at myself, I have this picture of a guy who's pretty, pretty thin. Anybody suffer from the same? Uh, don't, don't. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thanks. I'm not alone. 
thought somebody was going to have to recommend counseling to me afterward. Uh, well, so you get the idea. He had this image of himself that was really a part of a former reality or a different reality that was programmed into him. But nonetheless, he looked a certain way. And what I'm, what I'm realizing is that if I want to look like my residual self-image is, I'm going to have to really go through some pain. Things are going to have to be different. And all of you can relate to this, almost. Those of you who can't, we need to take you out and give you a sound beating. Um, uh, because you have metabolisms that allow you to eat anything. And I think in heaven, it's going to be the opposite. I think you're going to have to go on the diets. And those of us who can't eat everything are just going to be led to the banquet table. And God's going to say, have at it. You really won't get fat. And it'll be true. And, and the rest of you who've just been eating whatever you've wanted all this time are going to go to the dieters table for the first hundred years so that we can relate again. God wants to bring us into community and fellowship and we'll all be able to really relate when that day comes. So anyway, you just think about that. I, I, I don't have evidence from the scripture. That is a, a, a thus saith Greg at this point and not the Lord. So as long as we have that understanding. But... Um, it is still possible for a guy with a residual self-image of being thin uh, to work his way to being that. And it really involves pain. What it involves is you've got to give up the desire or the, uh, uh, how do I want to say it, satiating the impulse drives of life. And I'm not talking about, you know, eating a banana split by yourself. I'm talking about the temptations to eat, uh, you know, in some ways normal food. Learning what to eat when and how to eat it in such a way that your, your, your diet is helping you achieve your objectives. And I know those of you who have been through diets know that that's painful. I want to eat what I want to eat when I want to eat it. And I have a particular fascination with butter. Uh, for those of you who saw Last Vacation with Queen Latifah, uh, she is walking with Chef Didi or whatever his name is in there. Yes, Last Holiday, thank you. And um, Chef Didi turns to her and says, we know the secret of life. We know the secret meaning of life. And she says, we do? And he goes, yeah, we know, you know. She goes, what is it again? He goes, butter. <laughs> butter. And some of you laugh because you, you know what that means. You too know the secret meaning of life. Uh, those of you who weren't laughing have yet to discover it, and that's probably a healthy thing. Um, and then there's the exercise side of things, right? You've, heard, you've all heard no pain, no gain, whatever. But um, a muscle is an interesting thing. Most of us have muscles in places that we don't know exist because we never use them. We're just really not aware that they're there until we use them. Anybody like never water ski and then go water skiing one afternoon? You found yourself in traction the next day? I mean, your forearms, you couldn't open or close your hands. Your low back was just screaming. Um, you know, maybe you had a cramp in your leg. Who? Anybody been snow skiing without conditioning? You get halfway down the mountain and you're... <gasps> and it's 10,000 feet. 
you're trying to recover from all the work of skiing, you know. Would have, would have paid to do a little exercise in advance of that moment. Your, your quads are on fire. Anybody play basketball for the first time in 20 years and sprain an ankle, a knee, and have to have hip replacement surgery afterward? <laughs> you know, it, Peter's never had this problem because he loves sports and he stays active with it. But for those who kind of come in and out of these things, there's a whole new level of awareness and pain you've got to enter in order to change the reality that exists. When you gain muscle tissue, you gain weight because weight, muscle tissue weighs three times more than fat tissue. So you're on a diet and you're exercising and you're not losing weight. Double pain and no benefit or so it seems. Could the universe conspire in a greater way against you? I think not. But good things are happening because muscle also burns a lot more energy. And when you move, your body begins to utilize more of the energy you consume. And little by little, your body image becomes more in conforming ways to the residual body image you carry in your head of yourself. Am I making any sense at all? Because I'm not just talking about the matrix or my diet. I'm talking about a, a spiritual reality that exists out there too. And we got a, a different kind of hint at it in the text read in Daniel today. You see, when it, when it comes to an idea of what it means to do what God wants us to do, most of us are in two, maybe three camps. The first camp is we just have no idea what this means. That's, that's probably the biggest camp. What on earth is the will of God? And is there a will of God for me? And if there is a will of God for me, is it general or is it specific? And so forth and so on. That's probably the first and largest camp. The second camp uh, may believe that there is a will that God has for their lives. It may be general or specific or both. But then the question comes as to how to hear it and how to pursue it. And the third camp is impatient. And maybe that's where I'm preaching today is more toward the third camp. Hopefully the others of you can come along. Is impatient because they have some vague idea of where it is they want God to take them or where they think God is leading them for the long haul. But they're stuck in some other reality. Now, I look back at something I wrote in college about where I would be at this point in life. And I'm sorry to say, as, as much as I love you all, it would seem, compared to that list, I'm a pretty big failure. I thought by now I would have my Ph.D. I haven't even started my Ph.D. Milton, we've got to work on this. Okay. Second thing I thought is that I would be maybe pastoring a university church by now. Most guys, if they're going to do that, kind of get their break in their late 30s, early 40s, and I'm rapidly moving past my late 30s. <laughs> so, you know, um, Lord, what's going on here? I have this sort of residual self-image of how I see myself in the 
in the larger scope of things, then I, I'm, I'm not in the reality I envisioned for myself. Maybe I would be teaching a few classes at the university, doing a little counseling on the side, you know, grand ideas about what ministry would be for me. Not that Santa Clarita is a bad place to be. I'm not saying that. Don't hear that. But if you think about your life spiritually or in your terms of your vocation, you may have some of the same feelings. You may have some of the same questions. It is, you know, the people who have known since they were five what they wanted to do and achieved everything they wanted to do, God has a special table for them in heaven too. Yeah, they, they, get, they get to go to the diet table, the kind of place of ambiguity for a while because they've been so focused. And God wants to kind of help them see that there's things beyond their focus. And those of us who haven't gotten there, we're going we're gonna to actually achieve something, I think, just another theory and for what it's worth. I say these things because I want to encourage you in the story of Daniel today. Daniel was royalty. He was Jewish royalty. We don't know where he stood with his three friends in the court of... Was it Judah? I guess it was Judah at the time. But he was related to the royalty, to the king. Daniel was a young man. And I don't know what his aptitudes, I don't know what his interests, I don't know what it was that he did in the life of the court of Judah, if anything. We know very little about him prior to this first chapter of Daniel. But we find God's instrument of judgment, Babylon, moving against Judah. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the known world then for the Babylonians. And his son, Nebuchadnezzar, would take the reins. And Nebuchadnezzar was a benevolent dictator, but a king dictator nonetheless. And he was smart in that he knew that the Babylonians were a superior people. He knew that it was a superior culture. He knew that it was a superior race, a superior army, a superior... They were the best. He knew this. And he had a twofold mission. One was to make sure the rest of the world learned what they knew and became educated and cultured. Does that remind you of anything in modern history? Colonialism, imperialism in our own era. We have this idea that our own culture is the best and what we really need to do is make everyone else like us and then the world would be a good place. So that was his agenda on the one hand. On the other hand, he was wise enough to know that there were truths and perspectives out there that were part of other cultures and peoples that he might not yet know. And he wanted to know them. He wanted those pieces of wisdom available. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make sure that he was able to incorporate the wisdom of the world into his own dynasty to make sure that it, it endured, that there were no surprises, that it would last as long as possible. So when we get to our text in Daniel 1, the opening chapter, the opening verses, it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had come to Jerusalem and besieged it with his father, Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. 
these they carried off to the temple of his god in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his god. Now, this is an interesting uh, sort of thing that's happening here. And it was uh, something that we talked about when we did 1 Samuel 4, if some of you are around for those sermons. The Philistines, when they defeated Israel, captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it off. Do you remember that? They took it captive. All sorts of terrible things befell them for doing this, and they ended up returning it. But uh, they did capture it, and they took it. And they placed the Ark next to their God in the temple of their God. And you recall that their God was fallen over and broken every morning and nobody could figure out what was going on. Well, the Babylonians drove right the spear right to the heart of things. They said, not only are we superior, but we're superior because our gods are superior. See, there's a spiritual angle to this, not just a political, social angle to this. Our gods are better than your gods, and because our gods are better than your gods, your gods are going to be taken into the service of our gods, just as your people are going to be taken into our service. And so the articles of the temple were removed from Israel and taken to the pagan temples of Babylon. Clear sign of the greatness of the Babylonian gods and the inferiority of Jehovah. Wow. Strong stuff. But true, isn't it? Historically, that was the perspective. That's what's going on in these verses. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelite from the royal family and nobility. None of the riffraff. He wants the best. And on top of that, verse 4, they were to be young men without physical defect, handsome and showing every aptitude of learning. Can you imagine what they were put through? to be sorted in this way. Scrutiny and physical examinations, athletic competitions, testing of all sorts. They were to be well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And they were just captive boys. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians because, after all, that would civilize them and bring them into par with the culture that was. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from his own table. Very generous, actually. Very. He wanted to assure himself that these who were chosen would have every chance of succeeding. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Verse 6, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Well, you know the story. They're given the meat and wine of the king's table and they reject it because it's been offered to the Babylonian gods. They refuse to enter completely into the control of the Babylonians through the diet that they took on. They reminded themselves that they were still Hebrew boys, still God's people. And they clung to that. And God blessed them and they excelled through that. What is not terribly obvious in the text but is present is that they were made eunuchs. And um, the best records indicate that their testicles were crushed. Now, 
put yourself there for just a moment. You're part of a royal family. Your country has been invaded and conquered. Your religious center has been ransacked and the articles you have held as holy have been moved off and taken to a foreign king's temple. You are separated from your parents and your family. You have been hauled a great distance to a foreign land. You have been scrutinized and tested and finally neutered, and now you're expected to perform for a king in his language by his training. How many of you think that that sounds like God's plan for a life? Not a one. Not a one. I, I would like to think that Daniel was always positive, but I can't imagine him being so through certain portions of this experience. As worthy as they were, I can't imagine them feeling good about this process. I can't imagine them being grateful for everything they were going through. But there's an end to the story, isn't there? You see, I know that some of you are going through things you can't be grateful for now. I know some of you are stuck. You're not where you think you ought to be. Life hasn't dished out what you expected, what you wanted. You haven't received from the various investments, and I don't mean just financial, I mean across the spectrum of life's energies. You haven't received what you thought you were going to have coming to you. Something hasn't added up. And you may be asking God, why am I in this place? Do you really have a purpose for me? Can it really be found in the midst of my suffering or my pain or my problems or my failures or my not being where I think I ought to be or you name some other condition? And then we remember Daniel. You see, this boy, man, would be used by God. He'd be given a gift. In chapter 2, when the king has a dream and all the wise men and soothsayers and sorcerers and seers and you name it, all the people of Babylon could not know the dream or interpret it. When Nebuchadnezzar was fed up and ready to execute everybody, the same guard, Ashpenaz, stays the, the execution for a day so that Daniel can pray. He hasn't forgotten who his God is or who he is. He hasn't given up despite the fact that he's a stranger in a foreign land, being educated in ways that are not the ways of his people being stripped of certain dreams that he must have had for himself. And he and his friends pray and God shows him the dream and the next morning he goes to the king and he tells the dream and the interpretation. 
And all of a sudden, friends, it doesn't matter that the articles from the temple in Jerusalem are in the temple of a foreign king. There is now only one God who can speak and who can know. And his name is Jehovah. And the witness is so powerful. This teenager, this young man, this boy, speaking before the greatest king on earth in a language he's just learned and giving glory to the God of heaven whom his people serve. And not even Nebuchadnezzar will speak against it. Elsewhere, we read in various stories that progress through Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar ordered that anybody who spoke any word against the God of heaven should be cut up to pieces. Let me assure you he was serious about that. He was serious about that. Daniel, you know the story. Daniel would go on to serve Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian. He worked with Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, the king. He worked with Darius the first, the king of the Medes. And he worked with Cyrus the Great, the first king of Persia. Daniel would have a tremendous range of political experience from the time of his childhood, essentially, to being a very, very old man. He would span cultures and span kingdoms, and he would speak truth to kings about the God who lives and knows and guides. About the God of purpose about the God who, in spite of all he had been through, would use him for tremendous things. And here's where the encouragement comes in. It really doesn't matter where you are or what you've accomplished or not accomplished. It doesn't really matter at this point whether your experience has been all good or all bad. It really doesn't matter if things have happened in your life in such a way that you don't understand them. Daniel had no way of knowing what was coming for him. He had no way of knowing that he would become a great in the kingdom of Babylon, that he would become honored by Medo-Persia. No way of knowing. And yet it happened. God was able to use this castrated, displaced Jewish boy national in a foreign land to speak truth to pagan kings and empires and to speak truth to us today. To be a monument in the Jewish scripture. Because it's not recorded anywhere that Daniel ever sinned. I'm sure he did. But there's no failure recorded for Daniel. None. Not one. 
And so I want this to be a day when we say, okay, God, whatever my job or duty, whatever middle place I find myself, wherever I feel stuck and like you aren't there, whatever isn't working in my life, whatever seems like I'm not going to, I just can't get where I want to go. Whatever about your life feels like you just, the thumb screws are, are, are on you. You just, the pain is great. Whatever in life is just kind of working, but you've just been in the rut, the same place, the same direction. You're, it's the same old, same old. Monotony, boredom, routine, whatever characterizes your life. Remember who you are in Christ. He's called you a son and a daughter. He's called you a friend. You're a child of His. He's called you a priest and a king. He's called you all kinds of wonderful things. And you don't know when the day will come when something great will happen through you for God. And you may not even know it's happening when it's happening. And so let's be people of hope and courage and perseverance. I'm not going to settle the question for you with words of whether God has a plan for your life or many plans for your life or simply a generalized plan for your life. You need to sort that out with Him. I'm here to tell you that if we trust Him, He will use even negative circumstances in our life to speak. And you never know. Like Daniel, it just might be before a great king.